Our text this morning is going to be from the book of Exodus. We're going to be in chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33, beginning in the first verse. Listen carefully, for this is God's word. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here. You and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far away from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up. And each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this word that you have brought to us today. Lord, please empower me to speak it to to our hearts and to your people. And it's in Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen. Being around a powerful presence is an awesome thing. But with that presence, there is danger. In the Chronicles of Narnia, Susan asks if Aslan, the great lion in this story, is quite safe. The response from a Mr. Beaver said, who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. What C.S. Lewis was indicating in his story is what this text is is revealing to us about God. Namely, that God's presence is absolutely essential and good. But he is not safe. We're going to dive in and find out exactly how. Let's go into these first six verses that we read. In our first six verses, we uncover the truth that God's presence is absolutely essential. But God will not tolerate sin in that presence. It's the most important thing in our entire lives, God's presence. But he cannot stand sin. We remember the last chapter that we looked at last week, Exodus 32, in which the people built the golden calf. And they have sinned in basically every way that God could have asked them to sin. Before they even got the commandments, they had broken just about all of them. By raising up this physical God, this physical idol. They wanted something in their midst right now, but in so doing, they pushed out the real God and ended up losing this idol anyway. So God is responding to this, and he says in these first few verses, to go ahead and go up into the land in which I have sworn, literally it says I've bound myself with seven things, or sevened myself. I've sworn to give this land to you, but I will not go up with you. Now this, in this part of the passage, this actually had me scratching my head a little bit. Because I was thinking, if these, if looking at these people, who not just a few verses ago wanted to raise up some sort of golden calf that they could worship any way that they wanted to, why would they be sad that God wasn't going up with them? Honestly, they were going to get everything that they were hoping for. They were going to get everything a country could ask for. They were getting land. The military conquest was going to be taken care of for them. An angel was going to go before them and drive out all the people. So military conquest, that's checkmarked. Have free land, good defense system, everything you could ever want. They even have a dramatic story. But they are mournfully repentant. Why? Well, they realize that God's presence is the only thing that makes them truly special. God's presence is the most important thing that they could possibly have in their lives. That even having everything else that they could have ever wanted and been hoping for for centuries is worthless in comparison to having God in their midst. They must have his presence. But here God is telling them that if he was to go up with them for even one moment, he would consume them. This raises another question. It's like, I thought God kept a pretty good hold on his temper. This seems like in the moment that God is losing his cool. He's not able to handle the people and the, the, the temper that he has. But this isn't the case. God is not being impulsive. God is not flying off the handle. In fact, when God determines to destroy someone, 
This is a righteous reaction. He sees sin in front of him, and the just thing to do is to consume the people. In this moment, God is being kind to them, it would seem, by saying, send them away. It's not safe for you to be around me because you are sinful people. Now, it does seem to be that they respond with repentance. It talks about that they take off the ornaments off of their bodies, likely some earrings or things like that. We've actually seen this happen before back in Genesis. Genesis 35, 4, Jacob has some household gods amongst his people. And he tells them to put away the idols and take the rings out of your ears. So presumably this was in some way marked of idolatry. So they are in fact showing a repentance. Realizing they're about to lose the most important thing. God's presence. And they put these things away. Now, for the time being, God is not going to disappear. In fact, God's presence is going to be relocated. Instead of a near, full, intimate presence, there is a distant presence. And that's what we see here in verse 7. We note the number of times in which the Bible makes mention that this tent is outside of the camp. This is a different tent than what we, than what we have been studying about of the, of, of the tabernacle. Having the altar and the incense and all these sorts of things. This is the tent of meeting. This is a different tent. And it's being pitched outside the camp. God is still accessible, but he is far off from the camp instead of the midst of it, which is what the, um, the, the hope was at this time. So now we see Moses stepping into his role, as we've already seen in last chapter, as the mediator. God is, uh, or Moses is now the go-between between the people of God and God himself. When they need to seek the Lord, they come to Moses. Moses comes and takes it before God. He has a face-to-face conversation with God that we see here in verse 11. Now, the face-to-face, this is talking about the intimacy that he has with God. He's not literally face-to-face, and why that is the case, we'll see in just a moment. This is just a turn of phrase that he's using. So now we get into verse 12. And here we can see the, this turning point in this passage. We see Moses being the mediator for his people and God working through those things. And here's where we find God choosing not only how the story is going to end, but all the turns in between. I mean, what do I mean by that? When we can take a look at this, we can say, it's like, all right, well, why is this passage here? Here we find out God has promised from a long time ago that he will give them a land, a seed, and, and a promise, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This seems to be the promise. We know that God fulfills his promises. And now we have this little kind of inter, this, this thing where it seems like God is changing his mind. Then all of a sudden he says, and at the end of our passage, as we'll see, he says, I'm going to, I'm, I am going to go with you, and I will be your God, and I will be with your people. Why this turn? What is the point of this? What we find out is God not only ordains the end of everything, but he ordains every turn. He has ordained that the way that he's going to fulfill these promises is by Moses stepping up. Moses being that mediator. Even that is God's grace. He's working through every twist and turn. And as we examine these things more closely, the way that Moses is prompting this is through his promises. 
Moses is not doing some grand work that changes God's mind. God is simply prompting Moses to say, it's like, yes, your presence is very necessary. In fact, your presence is the most important thing that we could have because you've promised it. That grace that you have promised is received, not achieved. And Moses reminds him by saying a few things. Notice here in verse 12. Yet you have said, I know you by name. There's something really significant here about names in ancient culture. A name was more than just an identifier. A name was more than just a tag that you would put on somebody to separate one from, from another. In fact, a name was given to a child and was, and was not discussed prior to birth. The name was supposed to be, a, in some ways, a, a revealing of that person's true character. Even sometimes their destiny in some places. And a name wouldn't be given until the birth because that name was tied to the circumstances of that birth. Which is why it's a really big deal when Jesus announces the birth of someone and says, and his name shall be. It's defining a destiny here. So when Moses says that God knows Moses by name, it's more than just, I know Moses' name. I know everything about you. I know you intimately. I love you. And he's reminding him of this promise. Now, why does it seem like Moses is asking for him to go up twice? He says, I found favor in your sight. And verse 14 says, well, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And then it seems like Moses comes back and says, well, you really need to go up with us. It's hard to convey in the English text, but the you here that, Mo- that God first gives him is a singular you. It's like, fine, I will go up with you, Moses. And I will give you rest, Moses. And this is prompting Moses again to say, it's just like, no, 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 no. You've promised both I and your people are going to be going up with you. And in this, God says, this very thing in verse 17, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. He's doing this because he has found pleasure in his mediator. Then Moses makes a request. He requests to know God, to know his ways. He says, I want to see your glory. Again, this is, this is underscoring how important God's presence is. Moses wants to see even more of it. But this also highlights the danger of God's presence. Even somebody like Moses... As blessed as he is to be in this position of leading his people. Even Moses can't be in God's presence unprotected. That's why God tells him, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. And I will protect you with my hand. To put it provocatively, God is protecting Moses from God. In fact, and the word that is used here is, is talking about the palm of God's hand. Now, God doesn't have a literal hand, but the word that he's using here is to help us understand God is using the softest part of his hand to mercifully cover his servant as he goes by. Now, this passage really opens up for us, again, the necessity and danger of God's presence So how can we approach him? While we may not have made a golden calf, we are just as guilty and deserve to die just as much as the Israelites do. Our sin separates us from God just as much as their sin separates them from God. And God's presence is just as needful to us as it was to them. 
So what we need is a mediator. We need someone to go between us and God. But who's going to do that? Well, in the New Testament, we have the perfect mediator. We have Jesus Christ who can behold God face to face. Who was with God and was God. A mediator who says, Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, then save my people. And he does. And now, for us, those of us who are in Christ, the tent of meeting God is no longer outside the camp. It's not even in the midst of a city. It's in the midst of our hearts. The Holy Spirit has come to live inside those of us who have put their faith in the great mediator, put their faith in Christ. So what does this mean for us practically? What does our life look like with this presence in our lives? This is something that we need to seek with all of our hearts. Be so careful not to put other things in its place. It can be done. While our union with Christ is unbreakable, that communion with Christ, that sweet fellowship can be broken by our sin. doesn't mean that we lose our salvation, but that joy that we have can be diminished. So if there are ornaments in your life that we need to put off, some things that are distracting us from seeking after God with our whole heart, put them away. Seek out God's presence. Trust in Christ. So if we could sum up everything that is said as we close, our takeaway from today, that Christ, the mediator, the perfect mediator, has secured God's blessed presence in your life. So seek him more, whatever it takes, so that you may know him more and be transformed. Is he safe? No. He's not, but he's good. He's very, very good. He's the king, I tell you. Is he yours? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this presence that you have given to us. Lord, I pray that we would not take this presence for granted, that we would not look to this thing as a given, something that is cheap, And can be ignored. Lord, I pray that you would grant to us fresh eyes to see as much of your glory as we can stand. Help us to love you more and more. And that we would treasure your presence above all else. And it's in Jesus' name that I ask these things. Amen.